Hey, everybody. Good morning still to you guys. I am really excited to share the word with all of you. If you don't know who I am, my name is Seth. I work with the creative department here, all these wonderful musicians, my friends. And um, I want to share with you guys something that's uh, really that I've just been deeply on my heart for the past several weeks as we've been preparing for this series. We've been in a series uh, started last week called More Than a Song. It's a series about worship. Uh, Some of you may know that that topic is a topic of great passion for me, and so I'm really excited to be able to share today. I do want to share one thing with you. You just heard City Fall Fest um, talked about on video announcements. This is an invite card for it. City Fall Fest for us is, um, it's so important to us because it's an opportunity for us to love our community practically and to, and to live out a gospel that's not just come and see, but go and tell, yeah. right? That we actually get to exit the four walls of this building, which actually isn't called a church, if you didn't know. Do you know what a church is? Y'all, us. We are the church. But anyway, the church is going to be meeting at Kootenai County Fairgrounds on Saturday night, October 31st, and we have an opportunity to share Jesus with people in a very practical way. Just think about it like this. There are going to be people there that night who probably would never step foot inside this building, never step foot in here to experience a a traditional spiritual gathering, but they're going to be there with their kids, and we have an opportunity to show them what the love of Jesus looks like in a very practical way. So I want to encourage you, grab an invite card on your way out. If you know people with young kids, it's going to be a blast. We're going to have all kinds of kids' games, food, music, all this stuff. Super fun and safe alternative to trick-or-treating. It's going to be a blast. Now, let's get into it. Today, I want to talk about a question, uh, a question that is very, very important to my heart, and I hope that if it's not important to you yet, it'll be important to you by the end of today, and that is, what does the Bible actually say about worship? Not what does years of tradition say, not what does church culture say, not how you were raised, but what does the Bible actually say about this concept of worship? It's a very important thing. It's very important for us to derive our understanding of spiritual concepts from the scriptures and not just because, well, that's the way we've seen it play out or because that's what someone told us one time. Amen? This message, if you're taking notes, is called Get Low. I know what some of y'all are thinking. It's not that. Right? We're not talking about little John, okay? We're going to read from the book of John, but not little John. And I want to I talk about two primary passages of Scripture today. One of them is going to be in the Old Testament, one in the New. In the Old Testament, we're going to look at Psalm 95. In the New Testament, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Now, the Psalms are a collection of prayers and praises and instructional writings actually penned by several different writers over a long period of time. Now, we know the most famous writer of the Psalms who wrote 73 of them, and his name is? David, David, yes. The Psalms are, are considered one of five books of wisdom or poetry from the Old Testament. How many of you guys know there are different genres within the Bible? Did we know that? First, we have the Torah, which literally translates to instruction, first five books of the Bible. Then we have Old Testament history. Then we have the prophets. And then we move, wait, 
Old Testament history, then we have the poetry and the wisdom, which we're talking about today. Then we have the prophets, and then we move to the New Testament. We have the Gospels. We have the epistles. We have a few books called apocalyptic literature, which is the last book of the Bible, Revelation, as well as one of the Old Testament books. Part of it, the book of Daniel, is considered apocalyptic literature. I'm not trying to give uh, an academic lesson today. I'm just saying that there's a lot more to the Bible, I think, than, than, than a lot of times how we treat it. Sometimes we, we, we read it and we try, to, we try to read it without understanding who it was written to, when it was written, what culture it was written for. And there's certain things that we don't understand and we just leave it be when God really has a much deeper understanding for us to walk in if we are willing to search it out. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it is the glory of kings to search a matter out. Psalm 95 is a, a psalm of praise. A psalm of praise, but also a psalm of instruction on that topic of praise. We're going to start in verse 1. It says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. That's good news for all of y'all who can't sing in pitch as long as it's a joyful noise. God is pleased with it. And hopefully there's enough of us here to bring us back into, bring enough of us who can sing on key, Right? Okay, we're all meant to sing. We're just not all meant to sing on a microphone, right? <laughs> Praise God. Praise God, okay? <laughs> Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Now zoom in right here, verse 6. Zoom in. Pay very close attention to the wording here. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. And we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. How many of us know and love Paul? Paul was a guy named Saul who persecuted Christians. And all of a sudden, Jesus knocks him off his high horse. Says, what are you doing, Paul? And Paul becomes Paul, who was a persecutor of those who followed Jesus, but then became one of the greatest spiritual leaders and fathers of the Christian faith of all time. Now, Paul writes several letters, which actually make up a good portion of the New Testament. And this letter is to a church in the city of Corinth, which I actually got to go to about a year and a half ago. It's not nearly what it is like now. It's not anywhere near what it was before. It's pretty actually kind of sleepy and chill now. Super fun to just go. It's a little coastal, little coastal city. But once upon a time, it was a center for trade. And it was somewhat of a metropolis, a big city. And we know, based on our experience in the United States, that a lot of times big cities are centers for, we'll put it nicely, and we'll say immorality and worldly living. And so it's no surprise that in Corinth, the city of Corinth, which is in modern-day Greece, this immorality began to seep into the church of Corinth. And Paul got word of this, and he was like, the Corinthians did what? I mean, if you just read the book of 1 and 2 Corinthians, you'll be like, they need some correction in Jesus' name. And so Paul writes a letter after he hears these reports. And uh, the letter not only includes addressing the immorality of the church in Corinth, but also some church practices that were not proper. 
practices that were, were not helpful for maturing and growing and doing things decently and in order. And so he instructs about that too. And so that's the context that we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. He's particularly talking about two spiritual practices, which we absolutely believe in here at Heart of the City Church for today. And those are speaking in tongues and prophesying. And what Paul does in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is he gives a context and say, hey, here's when this is appropriate. Here's when it's not. Here's where this is helpful and useful. And here's when it's not. And here are the results if you will use these gifts in a proper way. So 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we'll start looking at verse 24. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, zoom in, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Pray with me. Father, we thank you so much for your beautiful, precious word. We thank you that as we open our hearts today, Lord, that our hearts are like soil for your word to fall on, God, as seed. And we pray that our hearts will be good soil and that your word will be planted deep inside of us so that it, we might bear good fruit, God, that we might follow you with all that we are. God, I pray that we would not be the same as when we walked in here this morning when we leave, that we would be different because we have been transformed by your precious word that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, even dividing between soul and spirit. We pray that your truth would be what resounds today and anything else that is not your truth, God would fall to the ground and be forgotten. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So um, when I went to college, I actually didn't go to college for Bible. I went to college and was a business marketing major. And one thing that drew, has drawn my attention over the years is the way that certain brands have become so influential and so popular that they have us using their terminology to describe other products that aren't even a part of their company by their brand name. I'll give you an example. You, you guys will feel me in a sec. All right, so let's say we go to a local coffee shop, right? We got like that hipster barista that's like, okay, let me make you a drink. And we go up to them and we order our latte. And the hipster barista says, what size do you want? And one of us might accidentally say, I'll take a grande. And then they give you that little smirk that only like, you know what I mean, only that a hipster barista can do. And be like, you mean 16 ounce. And I'm like, Yes, I mean 16 ounce. Like you know I know. Like you know. Like, we, like you and I both don't know that what Starbucks is, okay? Right? Okay, another example. All right, let's say you have a runny nose. I have a runny nose. Can someone give me a Kleenex? That's just a brand, y'all. Kleenex is just a very powerful brand that has got us thinking that everything that is tissue paper to wipe our noses is Kleenex, just a brand. All right, let's try another one. Okay, I, wanna, I want to cook a roast or something like that all day long, so I'm going to throw it in the crock pot. Isn't that interesting? Just a brand. Just a brand of slow cooker. I know. It's crazy. It's a slow cooker. 
Crock-Pot is just a brand, just a very popular brand. Okay, here's another one, okay? I got chap lips. My, my lips are all torn up and dry, so I need some chapstick. Wow, what a powerful brand. It's lip balm. <laughs> chapstick is just a brand. Okay, here's the one that really got me, though, that just, like, blew my mind. Feel this one, okay? I have, let's say I have some wax buildup in my ear, so I need to grab a... Q-tip, just a brand. Q-tip is just a brand. It stands for quality tip. And all it is, all it is, it's, it's a, no, it is. That's what it is. It stands for quality tip, period. You should have heard the brand it was called before then. I'm not even going to say it in church. All right. Well, just because, okay, don't feel me. The brand, before, it, it could just come across like, uh, look it up, all right? I just don't want to get into it today. I don't want to get into it today. Come on, don't, don't provoke me to do things that are going to get me emails, for goodness sake. Church? It's called a cotton swab. I, honestly, when I was reading up on this and I found out the Q-tip was just a brand, I literally didn't know the word for the product other than Q-tip. I'm looking at it, I'm like, it's a Q-tip, that's what it is. What, what else am I gonna call this little, you know, hard papery thing with two cottons at the end? It's a cotton swab. So obviously these brands are super powerful, right? They have, and I don't even know, we don't even know how many other brands have done that to us where we're just using their terminology and they're just like, yeah, yeah, use our terminology. Yeah, we'll just plant that right there. Yeah, you keep buying our product, you keep using it. You don't even, you don't even know what a Q-tip is actually called because we're so powerful. I don't, I don't know what the techno, technical term for this phenomenon is, but we're just going to call it, for all intents and purposes, we'll just call it a brand takeover. When a brand takes over a generic product to such an extent that the brand is now what that product is referred to from, from here on out. Monopolizing. Monopolizing. That's great. Monopolizing. Great. Excellent. <laughs> now, the reason I bring that up to you is obviously not so that we can have a marketing lesson today, right? Even though I do, I, it would be fun, but that's not what we're here for. The reason I bring it up to you is because I think a brand takeover, and possibly more than one, but I only want to talk about one today, that brand takeovers actually take place in the church as well with biblical concepts that then become cultural norms for how words are used, and we might just be calling things certain things without even having a real understanding of the depth behind them. I think a brand takeover has actually taken place instead of church culture with the concept of worship. And I'll prove it to you. Because I'll just say, I say worship, you picture in your head, what do you see? I bet you, you saw some instruments. I bet you saw people singing. I bet you saw maybe even a stage and people gathering around. And, and feel me, I'm not saying any of that's bad for you to have that association. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm not saying it's evil. Because singing to the Lord absolutely can be worship. It can be. And it often is. But worship, actually, I know this might, I, I don't want this to shipwreck any of you. But if we look at the Bible, worship is only associated with music a handful of times. And it usually is, takes place in different contexts. So again, not bad to think about this because this is an act of worship, of course. But 
when we relegate a, con- when we relegate a concept to only one element of it, like with those brands, right, we can miss out, I think, on what God actually has to say about worship. And so I just want to begin today, or like we're just going to scratch the surface. We're just going to scratch the surface about what the Bible says worship is. And in order to walk in or step into a little bit more of a complete understanding, I think it'll be helpful for us to look at the words that the biblical writers used for worship and how they chose to use them. Now, to give a little bit of background, we're going to do a little bit of a Bible trivia kind of lesson just to get us all refreshed. The Old Testament was originally primarily written in Hebrew. Good. And the New Testament was originally primarily written in Excellent. Okay. So it might be helpful then for us to look at the Old Testament and see what the Hebrew word is for worship and look at the New Testament and see what the Greek word is for worship, correct? To help us understand the words that they were actually using, not trying to enforce our meanings on them here in 2020 in the United States, right? Fair enough? Okay. So first we're going to take a look at the Hebrew word for worship, which is shaka. Say that with me. Shaka. Cool. Shaka. Sounds like, you know, cool. So shaka, the literal meaning of shaka is to bow. You might not be surprised. It's to bow. Now, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, it's actually translated as the word worship more often than it is translated as to bow, even though it literally means to bow, depending on the English translation that you're looking in. So at the very least, we can tell that the concept of worship, shaka, is almost inseparable from this idea or this concept of bowing. However, we can also conclude that it has a deeper meaning as well, because sometimes shaka is actually used in conjunction with the simple verb for to bow, which is I'm going to look so I don't say it wrong. Kara, okay? So that, it's, it's used in conjunction with that, and a perfect example of that is in Psalm 95. I promise you I have a point. We're not just doing a language lesson today, okay? You guys stay with me? All right, let's go, church. All right, so look at Psalm 95 and verse 6. Oh, come, let us worship shaka and bow down, kara. Let us kneel, barak, before the Lord our maker. The psalmist is obviously doing something here in in, in showing three very related but slightly distinct concepts to us. And what we can see with the usage of shakah, obviously not just in Psalm 95, but throughout the Old Testament, is that there absolutely is a deeper, more conceptual meaning behind shakah than simply to physically bow. Even though it does mean that, it also means more. The message that we get for the, in the uses of shaka throughout the Old Testament is that shaka is, it, 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 it's this bowing that is so much beyond just this physical manifestation of me getting on my knees or me putting my face to the ground, but that it is a, it is a, a bowing that involves the wholeness of our being, a, a bowing with our words, a bowing with, with our thoughts. A bowing with our hearts and a bowing with our actions. A bowing that is not just the body, but the soul and the spirit as well. Fair enough? 
Now we want to look at the Greek word as well, okay? Which you may be surprised that it's actually very, very similar in meaning to shakah. The Greek word for worship that is used is proskuneo. You may have heard us use it before, proskuneo. It's related to the word prostrate. Make sure you hear that second R. <laughs> prostrate. Okay? And if you don't know what it means to lie prostrate, I will show you. If you didn't know, my face is, is on the ground. Why? Proskuneo is a compound Greek word that is made up of pros, which is toward, and to kiss. Kineo is to kiss. So the simple meaning you could just, if you slam them together, is to kiss toward. But the more cultural understanding would have been to kiss the very ground that a sovereign or a superior is walking on. It is a sign of great reverence. Now, once again, like Shaka, though, we see evidence throughout the New Testament that this proskuneo word is much deeper than just the physical manifestation of putting your face on the ground. Let's take a look back at 1 Corinthians chapter 14 in that passage that uses the word worship. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, already a description of the posture of proskuneo, interestingly enough, the author felt the need to say falling on his face he will proskuneo, God, and declare that God is really among you. So once again, we find out that proskuneo is something much deeper than just a physical bowing or putting your face on the ground, but that it is a sign of, of deep reverence, not just in the physical, but in every element of our being. Okay, we got through the language lesson. In looking at not only the meanings behind these words, but also the way that the writers use them. How many of you guys know that the biblical writers knew and understood the words that they were using more than we know and understand the words that they were using? Can we admit that? Good. The way that they're used, it's really interesting. I, I'm forced to conclude that the concept of worship is so much more far-reaching than singing to the Lord. And I would even bring this to you, that it's not even the primary expression of worship that we see in the scriptures. I want to burst anyone's bubble because I understand that we probably have such a tight conceptual connection of singing to the Lord in worship that we might be going, Seth, I don't know about that. Well, if, I'll challenge you to do this. Go to your Bible and grab a concordance and look at every usage of the Hebrew word for worship and every usage of the, of the Greek word for worship, and I think you will begin to understand what I'm, trying to, what I'm trying to present to you today. I'm not saying you have to go and do all that. That would take you a really long time, but you could try a little bit of it. Again, I, I want to reemphasize and I want to pre-call. I'm not saying that this isn't worship at all. I think it's a beautiful expression of worship. What I'm saying is that when we take a word like worship and we relegate it to what happens right here, we miss the boat on the actual kind of worship that God is desiring from us. When we go like this and we go, well, I went to church on Sunday and I worshiped, do not assume that if you have sung to the Lord that you have worshiped. Do not assume. 
Because the worship that God is desiring, the way that that Jesus says it in John chapter 4, is a worship that is in spirit and in truth, is so much deeper than singing songs to the Lord. Even though singing to the Lord is a beautiful thing that is commanded, and it is part of how we can even enter into, the the Psalms say, enter into his presence with singing, enter into his presence with, with praise and with thanksgiving, all beautiful principles. But when we relegate this concept of worship to singing, we can let ourselves off the hook of the worship that God actually wants from us. I'm a worshiper because I, I sing. L- listen, just because I stand up on here and, and, and I, 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 we would culturally call me a worship leader, there are days when I stand up here and I'm not sure whether I've worshiped or not. Now, why would you say that, Seth? That, now that's making me feel weird. Well, how, 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 so, so how does God want to be worshipped? Well, I think we should, again, lean back on the way that the biblical writers are describing this word. Boshaka and proskuneo have a very similar meaning, but obviously so much more than just the physical manifestation of it. The worship that God is clearly desiring from us is one, again, in spirit and in truth. And what, that's such a, it's, it's, John, a lot of times, that comes from the gospel of John in chapter four. He, he a lot of times he speaks kind of swirly-twirly. I'll say it like that. John is very poetic and it's beautiful and it's great. And I encourage everyone to read the book of John. But sometimes it's so poetic, they're like, okay, can you give us a little bit more? Like, that sounds really, really good, and, and, it makes me, and, it, and it makes me feel nice, but like, what does that actually mean? And this is what I would submit to you today, that when Jesus says that God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth, this is what I would submit to you today. Those who worship God must worship from the very most basic core of who we are, the very center of our, the, the essence of our being, in spirit and in truth. Now you might say, well, yeah, of course, we worship with our hearts. Good. Here's, here's the danger. Here's the danger of just going, yeah, I worship with my heart, okay? Now, I'm all about that. We just finished writing a song that's called Whole Heart, and it's all about offering our hearts to God, right? So obviously you know I'm not against this idea of heart as primary because it's very clear in the teachings of Jesus and as we look at the Bible as a whole, God is after the hearts of his people. Fair enough? Okay, but primary does not mean only. Primary does not mean only. Here's what I mean. Let me, let me just show it to you this way. Okay, let's say there's a husband. Okay? So a husband, he's on his wedding day and he, he's, he's talking to his wife and he... And he uh, his, his, you know, the, on the day of their wedding, this his bride, and he says, honey, I love you. I, I am just enamored with you. I'm captivated by you. I'm committed to you. And I want to I wanna have a family with you one day. All good things, right? All nice and, and good and, and great, great things to say to wife. But then the next day, the next day they wake up and he proceeds to never talk to her never kiss her, never hold her hand, never express himself any way like that. He doesn't wear his wedding ring, doesn't tell anyone that they're married. They never sleep together. And, and without trepidation, 
he feels completely justified and expects his wife to be satisfied. Why? Well, honey, I love you with my heart. That's ridiculous. Why would you say that, Seth? You just said that the heart's primary and most important. Absolutely, it's primary and most important. But do you know what else the Bible teaches? Do you know what the heart does? It overflows. It overflows. So I think there's something in our culture where we're like, where people are walking around going, glory to God and trust God and love God and all that. But I just got to be real with you. If you lean back on anytime someone calls you out or anytime someone challenges you, anytime someone rebukes you, anytime someone tries to bring you into a deeper understanding, you go, well, you don't know my heart. You're right. I can't look upon your heart, but I can look upon your overflow. I can't see your heart. I can't. God looks upon the heart, but man looks upon the overflow. And so I just want to challenge that mindset today that the worship that God is requiring is a holistic one. You know, this idea of bowing physically, oh, that's uncomfortable. We don't really do that in American culture except when someone has just performed. That's when they bow. But bowing is very biblical. Very biblical. Most of the examples that we see of worship in the Old and New Testament, guess what they involve? And some of you are like, well, that's, that's so legalistic that you would say that I need to bow. Look, I'm not trying to put anything on you. When we go back into music, I'm not going to be looking at you to see if you're bowing. I'm, I don't even... To think that is just to totally miss what I'm saying right now. Because here's the thing. If you're offended about me challenging you about bringing physical a response to God, that's not even a drop in the bucket when, it, when we're talking about what the worship that God is actually desiring from you. Because the worship that God desires, this is just a shadow. It's just a shadow. It's just, it's just, it's just the iceberg. It's so, much, it's so much more than what, than what God is actually asking from you. God is asking from you that you take your finances and you bow with them. You take your relationships and you bow with them. You take your speech and you bow with them. You take all your actions, all the way that you operate in business, everything you look at behind closed doors, and you bow. So don't get Twitter-pated about this. Oh, that's uncomfortable. That's weird. That's really hard. You want to know what's hard? Doing this with every category, every element of who you are. That's hard. This is cake compared to the worship that God is asking from us. I want to leave you with this question, and then we're going to respond with musical worship. And hopefully you know by now. I'm not, this whole message has not been trying to hate on musical worship at all, obviously. Y'all know, I'm about it. But here's, here, let me, let me tell you what's so beautiful about the musical expression of worship. I just talked about this word, a shadow. When we do this, we are stepping into something that is so beautifully symbolic. It's real in and of itself, but it's also so incredibly symbolic because we are bringing ourselves to God and we have an opportunity to revere him and adore him and worship him, to bow with our words. 
to bow with our hearts and to bow with our bodies. You guys are probably comfortable with the first two. I get it. I get it. We have an opportunity to come to the Lord during these times when we gather together and say, I offer you how I talk. I offer you my heart, my inner, my inner workings, which I know you're after. And I offer you everything that I am physically as well. And I'm telling you, I know there is a stronghold in the Western church about physical expression. Let me tell you something. I used to be so wrapped up in the fear of man about worship. You would never catch me dance. You would never catch me anything because I was so wrapped up of what are people going to think about me? This is so uncomfortable. It's weird. People are going to think I'm weird. People are going to think that I'm expressive as a man. It's just not acceptable. Let me tell you. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. Do you want to be free? Do you want to be free? I'm telling you that sometimes a physical action is a prophetic act. We see it all over the scriptures. We go, we go, well, I can't, I can't, I can't physically express myself because, because I'm not free. Wrong order. Wrong order. No. You want to be free. You step out of the boat. You know, there's, this, there's this, such this lie. This lie that go, well, you know what? Oh, man, I'm just way too hot. There's this lie. It says, well, I don't feel like doing this, and therefore it would be ingenuine for me to do it. That is such bull. That is not Bible. Genuineness is being true to your identity, not how you're feeling. You know what would happen if you were true to how you're feeling all the time? You'd be dead or in jail. Oh, and some of you are like, no, I know. I, I, no, I don't feel those things ever. Oh, please. Take off that religious garbage facade and, and, and just believe that if we truly were led by our emotions and we thought that was genuineness, we would be incarcerated or dead. I would, 100%. I'm telling you, I've been in some conversations and I just pop if I was led by my emotions. We are not led by our emotions. We are led by the Spirit. And guess what? When we are led by the Spirit, we get to have authority over our emotions. Sometimes... Sometimes we get the pleasure of feeling and then doing. And la-di-da, that's great. That feels really nice when you feel first and then you do. But other times, and I've found the things that are most worth doing in this life, we do first and we feel later. Oh, that didn't get a lot of amens because you're like that, because that's completely countercultural. It's completely the opposite of what 2020 is saying. You know, oh, you just gotta be be true to be true to your truth and just you do you and all that garbage. Garbage lies from the pit of hell. There is no your truth, there is no my truth, there is the truth, and you can submit to it or you can rebel against it. We are not a people led by how we feel. No. We teach ourselves how to feel because we have the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, and you think He doesn't have authority over your little bad attitude? 
You think he doesn't have authority over your little fear of man, over your little I'm tired, over your little, oh, that's inconvenient? He absolutely does. Don't, don't, tell, don't tell me you're being ingenuine when you operate in contradiction to your feelings. You know what that's called? That is called discipline. That's called discipleship. That's called following Jesus most of the stinking time. All right? So, la- uh, man, I just, wow. Okay. I'm going to leave, and we're going to sing, and we're going to worship. It's going to be awesome, but I want to just ask, let's ask ourselves this right now. What parts of my life, what elements of my being those things that make me who I am are in a posture of proskuneo and shaka, of bow. What parts of me look like this in the unseen realm? And what parts, and what parts don't? Because those parts that don't, that's what he's after today. That's what he's after in you today. You got this little thing over here that you've been keeping for yourself. Just like, it's not that bad. Everything. He is not satisfied with the majority of you. He is a jealous God. And he wants it all.